We fancy men are individuals. So are pumpkins. But every pumpkin in the field goes through every point of pumpkin history. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank you all for joining me this week. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you liked the last one, and if you're new, welcome. I hope you uh, enjoy as well, and please feel free to peruse our backlog of episodes. Uh, now, I will go ahead and say that the audio might sound a little bit different uh, this week. I am traveling. Uh, my birthday is coming up, uh, and um, I've taken a few days off, but I did still want to record an episode or, um, while I'm gone, so um, if there are any delays or audio issues, that's why. Um, I'm going to try to record this in Run Run, but it may actually be broken up into a couple of different sessions. So please understand, please be patient, and uh, I will make sure that hopefully everything is at least decent sounding. So anyway, let's go ahead and get back to the meat of this episode. Um, so uh, there were a couple of things of feedback that I have, and uh, I did want to go over those first because there there was some very good stuff. Um, I didn't... Um, excuse me. Um, now, um, one of the things I had a question about was the, was the copper culture. And I mentioned a technique called cold rolling. Um, this is a very simple technique used by a lot of the earliest metal workers or people that um, just start kind of out with metallurgy. Uh, essentially, um, it's... It's something, or I should say, this just start out with copper metallurgy. Um, copper is a fairly uh, easy metal to kind of manipulate. Um, or, I'm sorry, this is like the earliest method used to manipulate the copper, excuse me. Um, and it's called coal rolling simply because the metal isn't heated and it evolves more than rolling essentially it's hammering banging chipping etc uh, essentially working the metal the same as stone and this could be done with other types of metals too so, so sometimes you'll see this as like a um, technique used intentionally later but we'll talk more about that stuff later now of course metal behaves you know rather differently than stone in most cases so variations of old techniques would eventually have to be used and um, kind of tweaked as it were to make it look or work like this, uh, the stone um, tools that they're making with the same material um, and of course later this would lead them to develop new techniques uh, when they also even when they're creating these same tools, they are changing things uh, based on the materials they're using. And of course, there's also the creation of jewelry, things like that, uh, which those require completely separate techniques from a lot of the material you would see used prior for jewelry. Uh, things like um, seashells and the like. Excuse me. Um... Uh, I also mentioned that they haven't found any evidence of blast furnace use or some equivalent technology or equipment that reaches the same temperature. 
but they will eventually heat copper. Uh, I'd made it sound like they didn't they didn't have to forge it. I felt like, um, but they heated it for different reasons, um, and also there's a difference between simple heating and blasting metal, all of which we will talk about later. I just wanted to make that distinction a little clearer. Heat was used in later cases, uh, and maybe even at the time period we're talking about, but it's not a blast furnace. Two completely different concepts. Well. I mean, you're heating the metal, but they're, anyway, it's it's not the, exactly the same thing, and there is a difference to why you would use one technique and not the other. All stuff we'll dive into. Another kind of piece of feedback I had, um, and it was kind of a contradictory statement, I realized, um, with how, how I explained it, and that was the fact that the groups don't really stand out from each other despite the fact that they all do use different, um, or they all have different artifacts. Um, now, how can they not really stand out if they all use different things? And that, that is a very good point, and I maybe should have expressed myself a little bit better. It, and it is a hard distinction to make, I, I feel like. And uh, there are sites that archaeologists debate about, like, who was here, uh, when they were here, that kind of thing. Um, but there are plenty of sites that, um, that they all kind of seem close enough to a neighboring site or a site, you know, um, maybe a um, couple of hundred miles away. So why isn't there like an overarching culture, I guess? Why isn't that considered? And um, it technically kind of is. Like the archaic period itself is kind of a, kind of a catch-all term. Um, and there are small variations in artifacts, um, but all of that is based on, you know, materials, like what they're using to create these artifacts. Um, and so you have stone, um, various types, you have flint, you, um, things like that. Just, they all have these small variations. Maybe this, maybe this tribe makes slightly more bifurcated arrowheads. Maybe this tribe makes slightly, uh, sharper, um, maybe flatheads to, you know, better hurt, hunt birds, um, that kind of thing. But the, there's very little real innovation between these sites. They're all following a basic formula. Um, and whether or not they're related is very hard to say because, again, there are these variations, but there's nothing that says... There, so there are small regional variations. Again, sorry. I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this. There are small regional variations based on materials available uh, in terms of um, environment, food sources, that kind of thing. But they're all making generally the same kinds of tools. And they're all, you know, eating whatever's local, which isn't that surprising. Most people, you know, 
they can't go to a restaurant, you know, three hours inland and get fresh seafood. That's not something that can be done um, like we do today. So, of course, they're eating local. So, it's just a question of how interrelated are these groups? Is there some vast material culture in the eastern U.S. that, um, you know, has not been properly identified yet? Possibly. But the variations are so small that it's hard to really break it down from a historical perspective. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of archaeologists who could give a much better in-depth breakdown of all of these sites. But again, at our time period, it's still early. It's still in the fog of, of prehistory. So there's not a whole lot to really dive into, as much as I'd love to. Um, and I'm still maybe not explaining that very well, but I just kind of, again, want to reiterate. There are small differences, but the differences that they uh, kind of exhibit uh, still make it very hard to come up with a distinct cultural or material identity. Uh, and that's why I haven't really focused on these groups just yet. Um, whereas, of course, the Clovis culture and the Folsom cultures that I talked about last season, um, those do have a much clearer culture, or at least material uh, connectivity, that these sites lack. So I hope I got there okay. I hope I explained that pretty well. Uh, but again, if you guys have any questions or feedback, or if I need to make a third attempt at it, uh, I will keep uh, giving that a shot. Excuse me. Now we're going to get to, uh, I guess, um, something I haven't really focused on the last couple of historical episodes, and I did have a question about it, uh, and, and this is about etymology. Um, now, that's part of that's my bad. I felt like I was kind of jumping around too far ahead at a couple places, and I would get distracted if I did. However, <laughs> excuse me, um, I did want to at least give the etymology for the Mississippi River and talk about the major tributaries that kind of flow into it. Uh, of course, this river system is going to be massively important to North America and will in some ways play a very similar role to the Tigris, Euphrates, the Yellow, and the Indus Rivers, what have you. So, um, and I by doing this and going into etymology, uh, I do hope that I kind of show you at least when it comes to some naming stuff, that the culture in North America doesn't really begin to solidify and consolidate until a little bit later than other places. Um, I talked about how there are myths from, you know, uh, or parts of myths from, you know, the previous uh, period where it was a, you know, last glacial maximum type deal where we have all these tribes uh, with stories about you know, the ground being cold and the emergence of forests after the retreat of the ice caps. There's not quite as clear of a, of like the, the, I guess the nature of the environment here around the Mississippi uh, from this point in time, um, at least 
again, it's not clear, so it's hard to say. Maybe there are myths that do stretch back and talk about aspects of the Mississippi from this period, but otherwise it's it's related to other stuff later when we talk about groups and myths um, and religious you know associations with these areas. It's not as quite, and uh, doesn't go as far back into antiquity as uh, things in the, the Pacific Northwest. Um, but more on that later. Let's just, uh, first I'm going to do like a geological breakdown of Missouri, and then I'm going to talk about um, the etymology of the word, uh, and um, we'll go from there. <clears throat> so, All right, so <clears throat> the Mississippi is divided into kind of six uh, sub-water um, systems or drainage basins. Um, there is the Missouri, and this, uh, this basin's primary rivers are the Missouri, which starts in kind of the modern state of Montana, and the Platte River, uh, which starts in Wyoming. These two rivers meet just south of... Um, Omaha, uh, which is um, the capital of Nebraska, and um, this is like right at the modern borders of the state of Nebraska and the state of Iowa, where the Platte feeds into the Missouri. Now, the Missouri then continues on to feed the Mississippi further to the southeast. Then you have uh, the upper Mississippi drainage basin. This is where the Mississippi begins with runoff from Lake Itasca. This is one of Minnesota's uh, 10,000 lakes. Uh, they are famously referred to themselves as the land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, this is actually fairly accurate. Uh, they have an extreme amount of uh, small water bodies. Uh, so if you ever look at a map of Minnesota, it's, it's crazy how many just small and not so small pockets of water you will find. <clears throat> now, um, leaving Lake Itasca, the river curves all through the region, picking up more water um, from the many other, again, lakes, ponds, streams, rivers, that kind of thing. And as it continues south, it meets Missouri. And the modern city of St. Louis is located where they meet. Now, in the east, you have the Ohio Basin, with its primary river system being the Ohio. Uh, and now, this begins where the Monongahela and the Allegheny Rivers meet, and that's where modern Pittsburgh sits, uh, at the confluence of those two rivers, the Monongahela and the Allegheny. Uh, then it becomes the Ohio, and this flows west before shifting to the southwest. In the next basin, is south of the Ohio Basin. Uh, this is known as the Tennessee Basin. And the primary river here is, again, the Tennessee River. Uh, this forms at the confluence of the Holston and the French Broad Rivers. Now, due to mountains and elevation, this river has a very long winding flow that eventually splits the river and causes most of it to flow north and west. And this is still the Tennessee, uh, the, the part that splits off, I forgot what it's called. But uh, the Tennessee uh, then empties into the Ohio, uh, 
around the city of modern Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, and these combined flow west where they meet the Mississippi around Cairo, Illinois. Now, for those of you with a passing knowledge or interest in U.S. geography, you will probably recognize most of the cities I've mentioned, but uh, Paducah and Cairo usually don't merit much mention as major U.S. metropolitan centers, despite the fact that they are situated at major river junctions, just like the others. And I'm kind of interested on why that is. I plan on doing some research on this, but um, obviously it probably won't be something I talk about on the show, at least for quite a while. Now, from Cairo, the Mississippi flows south for around 250 miles, which is, um, I think, around 400 kilometers. Uh, and there, uh, two more major rivers flow into it. These are the Arkansas and White Rivers, and they belong to the Arkansas Red-White Basin. The Arkansas River begins in Colorado, forming from snows running off the Rocky Mountains, or maybe like a smaller range just south of them. Now, this long river runs very widely through Colorado. It also goes through Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arkansas. The White River starts in northwest Arkansas from runoff of the mountains there. It then flows north and east uh, through southern Missouri and then goes back south through Arkansas, where it sort of ends up parallel with the Arkansas River before it flows into the Mississippi about 12 miles or 20 kilometers north of where the Arkansas River enters the Mississippi. Excuse me. Now... Despite the White River being much shorter than the Arkansas, it carries far more water and has a stronger uh, current than the uh, Arkansas. Now, uh, the Red River is part of the basin, but it doesn't flow directly into the Mississippi. Instead, it flows into a small fork of the Mississippi about 50 miles or 85 kilometers northwest of Baton Rouge uh, to form the Atchafalaya um, River. Excuse me. Pardon my Cajun listeners. I know there's at least one of you. So, um, and that river, of course, uh, kind of breaks off from the Mississippi, which continues to flow into the Gulf and the Ajafalaya um, kind of entities into like more swampy lands to the um, west of where the Mississippi hits the Gulf. So that's about the shortest explanation I can kind of come up with for the most important water system on the North American continent. All of these systems will eventually become lifelines to multiple human groups and, you know, not just for water, but also for trade and things like that. And that's all stuff that we're going to talk about. However, it is not the case just, just yet. Uh, rivers are important, of course, for migrating hunter-gatherer groups, but not nearly as important as they are for sedentary or semi-sedentary uh, groups or uh, tribes or whatever you want to call them. In fact, uh, in some cases, uh, living too close to areas that may be prone to flooding is 
probably not something you want to do if you can avoid it. So, you know, mobile hunter-gatherers, they may have been much more happy just going to water when they needed it or following animals there as opposed to living directly by these more volatile river systems full-time. Uh, and it, a lot of the river systems in, in these various spaces that we talked about, they're being fed by uh, runoff from mountains. So, you know, during the spring, these could be, uh, or when the melts happened, these could be um, very violent uh, floods in some places. Um, where the Missouri and the Arkansas meet the Mississippi, um, or I'm sorry, where the White and the Arkansas meet this Mississippi, um, there's no real city of any size. It's not like Paducah and Cairo where they're smaller cities. There is almost nothing there. There's just a few small towns, and there, in fact, there's a couple little islands like in those areas. Uh, these would probably not be great places for cities just due to uh, the type of flooding that can happen. And the Mississippi still floods several places. Um, so does the Tennessee. Uh, you still hear about that fairly, fairly regularly. So, you know, there are dangers to living directly on rivers. And if you don't need to do so, then you, you probably won't. Um, that said, um, we're going to talk about etymology. And I hope this can kind of give another example of perhaps how... Um, how unimportant, well, that's a bad word, how how less central rivers are to hunter-gatherers as opposed to uh, a semi-sedentary or sedentary society who is practicing agriculture. Uh, and that can be kind of, I think, gleaned a little bit from the name of the river. Uh, and of course, so that leads us to... Um, a little bit of an etymological breakdown. Now, uh, the name is originally from the Ojibwe or Ojibwa language, and they called the river Mizizibi, and this translates to the Great River. And of course, this uh, word was adopted into English, um, and that's what we use today. However, uh, the earliest Spanish explorers in the area called the river Rio del Espíritu Santo, or the river of the Holy Spirit. And the French called it the St. Louis River. And today, of course, we use that term to describe a very, uh, or a, a separate river system um, that's kind of north of the upper Mississippi basin. It's like kind of on the, um, uh, it, it feeds primarily into Lake Superior and forms a part of the border between like a Minnesota and Wisconsin. So it's north of uh, the Mississippi. Uh, and of course, uh, St. Louis uh, is also the name of the city. The reason for this being is the French, um, when they controlled the Louisiana Territory and that part of uh, Canada, uh, they kind of wanted to to create kind of trade enclave, and we'll go into far more detail on this later, but um, calling it, you know, St. Louis uh, and establishing the city of St. Louis, this was 
or St. Louis, sorry, uh, my French listeners, I think there's at least two of you, um, the St. Louis River, um, this is them kind of trying to make uh, a mark on the land and kind of make it distinct, and of course, eventually, the U.S. Pur- purchases that land from them, uh, but some of the name remains. Um, now, also, um, I mentioned Lake Itasca, where the Mississippi uh, forms. Um, you might expect that that is a um, a native word. I, I asked a couple of listeners and friends of mine um, what they thought the um, name Itasca uh, sounded like in if uh, they knew what language it was from. And they weren't really sure. They did think it sounded uh, some form of Native American um, language. However, the Ojibwe word for the lake, and of course they are the ones that pass the name of the Mississippi on to us, uh, is, and I'm going to butcher this, so I do apologize to any Ojibwe speakers, but it is Omash Zaganigan. Uh, I'm sorry, no, it's Omesh Kuzo Zaga Igan, which is Elk Lake. Now, um, there was a, I guess he was kind of a, a geographer, geologist, I don't know you, what you'd call him exactly. He was kind of a man of many hats, but uh, his name was um, Henry Schoolcraft, and he, he did a lot of uh, studies of Native American cultures, I think, back in, like, the early 1800s. (laughs) And he kind of, um, took some names to try to, like, anglicize anglicize them so people had a better way to, um, pronounce them in some cases and kind of help facilitate communication between the two groups. There are other reasons, too. That's just kind of a... I don't want to get too much into the details on this guy just yet because it is important, but um, that's just try to think what he was doing, what he was doing. Um, but Itasca is actually, uh, it's actually Latinized. Um, it essentially combines the Latin words veritas and caput uh, for true head. Now, this is actually not something you'd really use in Latin. Uh, as one of my friends pointed out, and that is true. Uh, but essentially, uh, it takes the uh, I-T-A-S from Veritas and uh, the C-A from Caput. So he just puts the end of Veritas and the beginning of Caput together. And Itasca can sound like some words in some native languages. Now, uh, we do have... Um, um, sorry, um, I wanted to talk about the Ojibwe, to talk about them real quick. Now, um, they are still, uh, an active, uh, like, um, an active, alive language. I think they have around, I think around 50,000 speakers, um, and they are, they have their own written um, writing system. 
Uh, I'm not sure what they use exactly, uh, but they're actually mostly around the northern border of the United States and the southern border of Canada. They they go all the way from like I think um, in the U.S. at least Montana uh, to uh, Michigan. They have some groups. Um, now I don't know where they are exactly in Canada, but it wouldn't surprise me if they kind of followed that same. Yeah, that same kind of uh, region, just slightly to the north. Definitely subarctic for the most part. Um, now, Ojibwe is a uh, subfamily of Algonquin, uh, and the Algonquin languages is a subfamily of the uh, Algic uh, family. Uh, now, Algic is uh, the only. Uh, or I should sorry, Algonquin is the only surviving sub branch uh, of the Algic languages. There were two others, uh, Weot and Yurok. Uh, these are extinct now, um, but uh, we will talk about the Algic uh, languages uh, probably next season, actually. Um, but uh, I guess the Proto Algic language uh, would have been spoken right around either the end of our current season or uh, probably in the middle of next. So sometime around uh, 5000 BC, give or take. Um, So, and these people, at least they're theoretically believed to have merged from um, somewhere in the uh, more west uh, closer to um, closer to uh, Washington and Oregon as opposed to um, Montana, uh, so they are still, you know, on farther away from the Mississippi, um, at least at the period that we're we're talking about. Uh, their the ancestors of the modern day Ojibwe speakers are not even close to um, where uh, where they are. Uh, now, um, at least that's most of what I could find from kind of talking about, um, or from reading about their, um, yeah, the origins of their language. Um, so, so it's somewhere in the northwestern United States, uh, and then um, the Algonquin branch moves. Um, to the east, uh, to near Lake Superior, and then from there they, they move out a little bit more and their language diversifies again. Whereas the Weot and the Yurok, they, they actually move to the um, south uh, west uh, from their original uh, kind of homeland, or, or Hymot, uh, and they end up along the coast of California somewhere. Uh, so very different uh, tracks. Um, but we'll talk more about this group and these peoples uh, later. Um, but that kind of shows, again, the people who are eventually giving their name to the Mississippi, um, or giving the name of the Mississippi to it, um, they're not there yet. Uh, they they won't be in that region until much later. Now, obviously, there were words and terms for the Mississippi, um, the who knows, the Ojibwe may have gotten their 
It may have been a direct translation, Great River. They may have got it from someone else. Uh, it is certainly a great river, the Mississippi. Um, but that is, as far as I know, um, and I did look into it for a little bit. I've, I've tried to get some more information for maybe some other native groups, but um, couldn't get too much. Uh, but I'll, I'll keep looking. Maybe we'll talk about that next season. But, yeah, so they have a... Um, they don't get to that region until later after that so um we will kind of discuss um that going forward but just to kind of show you that you know the the eastern u.s is a little bit i wouldn't say they're they're developing much differently from other places and other groups and uh, kind of things that we think about, you know, other Native societies to the south, it's not true to what's happening in the eastern U.S. They're very much, they're, they're very unique comparatively to some of the other groups in the Americas. And we'll talk about that more going forward. But um, yeah, that's kind of uh, one of the big things that I wanted to talk about. And I say going forward, when I, in fact I should be saying we're going to be going south. We're going to be moving into um, what is now modern-day Mexico in Central America. And to begin that, we're going to be talking about uh, kind of the environment and geography of that region. So, much like the American Southwest, uh, which is today very deserty, um, parts of northern Mexico are also very very uh, deserty and dry. Uh, that is probably not exactly the case at this period of time. It's again, it's probably seeing more rain similar to um, again the origin of the American Southwest, which we know was greener uh, or at least moderately greener than it is today. Though probably still not seeing as much rain. Uh, the reason for this is that. Uh, in the center of Mexico, um, you have what is known as uh, the Altiplano, or which is the um, uh, or the Mexican Altiplano. This is no, known as the uh, Central Mexican Plateau. Uh, it's essentially um, it's a it's a arid to semi-arid plateau that uh, averages about. 6,000 feet above sea level, give or take, a little bit under that, I think. And essentially, this goes from what is now the U.S.-Mexican border uh, all the way south to um, Mexico has a chain of volcanoes kind of in the um, kind of in the south. Uh, I think it's called just the Trans-Mexican Volcano Belt. Um, and that kind of separates this mountain range from, <coughs> excuse me, uh, southern Mexico, like the, the Yucatan. And um, this plateau is kind of bounded by uh, the Sierra Madres, uh, which is a mountain range. And um, it's in between the plateau and both sides of the Sierra Madres um, in these little uh, valleys and, 
canyons that you'll find a lot of uh, greenery. Uh, there's that's where you'll find most of the the plant and animal life, uh, and that's where humans will eventually kind of settle into uh, for this northern region. Uh, everything kind of essentially north of the volcano belt, uh, excuse me, is in these smaller. Um, uh, river valleys and things like that. Uh, whereas in south of the Volcano Belt, you have a little bit more, um, a little bit more openness. Um, you also have some rainforests and jungles and things like that, especially in the Yucatan. But um, yeah, the the kind of the mountains um, in the area very much define uh, what will become. Um, modern uh, Mexico. Now, um, excuse me, the Sierra Madres means uh, the mother mountain range in Spanish. Um, now, I don't believe there was a, at least I couldn't find an example of it, but there's no one native word uh, to describe the mountain ranges. <clears throat> Typically, um, from what I can tell, is that the there are sections of the mountain where they may be described um, or like they may add an adjective uh, to them. Like um, I think the one that I was able to find the most um, readily, readily available example was the uh, Tarahuarma or Humara, Tarahumara, which is a, um, <clears throat> which was a group of natives that lived near uh, what is modern day, Durango, <clears throat> and uh, essentially they gave their name to that part of the mountains. So there are <clears throat> places where native groups have a very strong association, but there's no one native name for that mountain range. And that's understandable because it's, in some cases it's not apparent how these are all connected. In fact, the Sierra Madres themselves are broken up um, at least geographically speaking, into the uh, eastern and western or occidental and uh, oriental um, branches. Uh, occident meaning uh, west, oriental actually meaning east uh, in Latin and, and Spanish too, as I believe. So, <clears throat> excuse me, even though they belong to the same range, they have different names depending on where you're living in the country. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice here. So, uh, with kind of the etymology out of the way, um, let's begin talking about the people, or at least what these people are doing. Um, again, heavily kind of isolated river valleys um, all throughout the the peninsula, or not the peninsula, but through the uh, the region. Uh, and these will eventually become home to um, sedentary groups. They may occupy entire valleys. They may occupy just sections of valleys or parts of rivers in these valleys, depending on their size. Uh, and then, of course, there are some that may occupy far more than just a single river valley. Um, and, you know, these wouldn't be, again, they're not close to being centralized just yet, but they are... Um, uh, 
they will some of them will be the basis for these emerging sedentary societies and of course again they're they're living again the hunter-gatherer lifestyle uh these valleys uh you know the areas around them are very again not quite as dry as they are yet but they are more arid especially on the plateau it's probably high enough it's not getting regular rain even though the areas surrounding it are getting it a little bit more i would think with the plateau being so high and as far as i could tell this there's no evidence that it was much greener it's still fairly kind of a shrubland uh there's there's only um certain types of like smaller hardier plants that are growing in the area um but uh, it is in these places in mexico uh, these river valleys where you begin to see <coughs> excuse me um the earliest evidence of them practicing uh cultivation of wild plants again that kind of early stage of um you know harvesting wild plants to performing a low level of horticulture and then slowly expanding it out to more um more advanced forms of true agriculture. Now, uh, Mexico is the source of a couple of different crops which will become very important in North America and also they'll contribute to places in South America. There's going to be kind of an exchange between North and South um, coming up here in the next couple of seasons. Um, where crops from one area are spread uh, and exchanged with crops from another. Um, but uh, the, essentially the three, um, or excuse me, the three main crops uh, that Mexico or people living in modern Mexico will be contributing are um, squash and also maize and uh, also beans apparently now uh, the last one is a little bit controversial um, for a long time it was thought that um, the American version of the beans the um, um, the uh, excuse me I'm trying to remember the Latin name I didn't write it down um, but the American bean because obviously there are beans in the old world fava beans things like that Whereas uh, in the Americas, you have, uh, I think, climbing beans are probably the most common, commonly known um, variety that we would have here. It's the thing that probably comes to most people's mind. Uh, but I believe it's um, Fazalos, I think, is the, uh, the uh, it's like Fazalos vulgaris, I think, is the scientific name for it. <laughs> For the longest time, those were thought to have emerged in the south, uh, in what is now Peru, uh, along with the potato. Uh, but uh, I think there's actually been some uh, genetic testing done uh, on some in um, what is now uh, like Mesoamerica, like south uh, Mexico, somewhere along Central Americas, that they found the wild varieties uh, actually emerged from... Uh, places in again Mesoamerica further north so um, 
there is now a little bit more of a debate on the origin of beans uh, in the Americas. I'd be willing to bet that, um, you know, that there were probably a little bit wider spread uh, and that the, you know, the ones that eventually get uh, everywhere in the Americas um, probably replace crops or, you know, again, kind of the... Um, kind of that transitory. I have a feeling that um, the people in Peru who were already, um, you know, uh, farmers uh, planting things like the potato, I have a feeling that they probably had some variety of wild bean that they were working on, but then you have this better one, more uh, more suited to their rocky environment. Because <clears throat> Mexico is very rocky. Um, even if the soil is fertile because of... Um, the, you know, the volcanic ash and that kind of thing. Um, I have a feeling that they were probably working on their own variety of bean, uh, but then you have this ready-made variety coming down from the north. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I have a feeling that they would have had a version of the bean regardless of that, whether or not they got it from Mesoamerica. So it's not really um, too, too important in my opinion, but I know there is some level of national pride um, but uh, you can read about the DNA test done. It's like a Mesoamerican origin of the common bean uh, revealed by Sequence DNA. It was done by Batachi et al. You can read about it in the, uh, I believe it's the National Library of, yeah, National Library of Medicine, uh, National Center for Biotechnology Information. Um, I believe the article number is... PMC 3325731. So, uh, if you'd like to read about that, please do. But yeah, so Mexico uh, is kind of the um, it's kind of the uh, Mesopotamia, or uh, as we've talked about, maybe Turkey uh, as kind of the origin for uh, most of the major crops in uh, certainly in North America. Um, however, at this early date, I think the only one that they've firmly been able to confirm that was being uh, domesticated or being close to domesticated is uh, squash. <clears throat> uh, now, um, squash, of course, is a very, uh, actually very wide um, variety of uh, plants included in that. Um, pumpkin is a squash, technically. Uh, you also have um, uh, zucchini, also a squash. Um, so, uh, very, um, very wide variety of plants are included in that. And as for what is um, domesticated first, that is, again, a matter of debate. Um, now, Again, this is the only one that we know, or we we're pretty sure was being grown even at this period of time, uh, and I think um, I think that makes a lot of sense because we know that the bottle gourd, uh, things that they were bringing with them from the old world into the Americas, um, we know they have domesticated that by again by around seven thousand, give or take. Um, and these are related. They're all uh, 
the squash are all cucabrita, uh, which is, again, that variety of gourd that they are bringing from Africa. So they, they find these wild varieties here. They're different. They're better suited to the climate. It would make sense. Like, hey, we've domesticated this. Let's... This looks like it can work just as well. And it, they probably tasted better. Um, because, again, the, the uh, African gourd, uh, not the best-known tasting thing, even by the locals in Africa. They, they kind of use it more for medicinal purposes as opposed to um, uh, using it for, for something that tastes good. They might use it as a flavoring, but it's not going to be your base for your meals, at least uh, not really. Unless, you know, unless you're in very hard straits. Um, but yeah, and of course, uh, there are a lot of varieties of uh, the, uh, the um, domesticated uh, squash today. Um, some have been domesticated for different reasons than others, but you have a lot of options in terms of squash. You have, you know, winter varieties, summer varieties, spring varieties, um... I'm not aware of any fall varieties. I'm sure there are some, but I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. But anyway, um, these are going to be key to, or going to be one of the big uh, three um, plants uh, that are domesticated and spread for um, agriculture in the Americas. Um, now, um, I mentioned beans already. Again, Beans probably not being domesticated just yet, uh, at least not in the Americas. Um, corn is a little bit more difficult. Some places you'll have, um, or sorry, maize. I think that's the more scientific term. Some places have that being um, domesticated as late as uh, 4,000s. BC, maybe a little bit before that. Uh, others are claimed that it is uh, being domesticated as early as 8,000 BC, which would be right at kind of the um, top of our the current season. <clears throat> um, I'm more inclined to believe a later date as opposed to an earlier, because again, these early periods of... Um, uh, crop domestication, it's very hard to kind of determine if seeds are domesticated or not. That's one of the harder things to do, uh, you know, from examples. But um, I don't think it was quite as late as the 4,000s. I think you're probably looking, probably I'd say sometime between maybe 6,000 to 4,000 at the latest end. Um, but that would be, again, I, I think you're, you're probably looking, um, at one of the earlier dates, maybe 6,000 to 5,000, somewhere in that period. Um, but again, they're working on this constantly. This isn't something that is, um, this isn't something that happens overnight. They're not purposefully domesticating corn, um, or maize, excuse me, um, and the early varieties of maize that they would be working on, um, 
they are not close to what we would imagine mace to be. They're very much smaller, they're thinner. Uh, the thicker kind of um, corn that we're more familiar with, um, much, much larger than the, uh, than the smaller wild varieties. Um, and again, this is something that has to be worked on. This is something that's taking well over thousands of years. So like the earliest domesticated strains of maize would not look close to what we're working with now. Uh, it has probably gone through, aside from the gourds, probably some of the more uh, drastic changes in terms of how it looks and how it grows. Um, now, uh, I believe the current... Um, there are two big sites where they think um, the, uh, the corn uh, was initially domesticated. Um, one is in the, um, uh, it's the Tehuacan Valley, uh, and this is in uh, central Mexico. It's just kind of in the, um, kind of on the edges of that, uh, that shrub, uh, shrublands I was talking about in the, uh, very southern tip of the, um, of where the uh, plateau of Mexico kind of empties out into one of those um, fertile regions. So it's kind of in a transitory period, uh, area uh, between the um, the Te, uh, Tehuacan and the uh, Sierra Madres Oriental Basin. Uh, so the Eastern Sierra Madre Basin. Um, the other candidate for domestic first domestication area is the uh, it's the Ayak River uh, which is kind of in the south uh, far southwest uh, of Mexico so actually kind of uh, if I guess if you look at between uh, the um, Tehuacan this is kind of to the uh, west and south of uh, Tehuacan. Uh, so the other side of the uh, Sierra Madres, essentially. Um, and this, uh, even if they're not fully domesticated, the maize here, they are they are probably one of the earlier areas in, um, in Mexico that is working uh, towards, I guess, domesticating uh, plants. If, if not consciously, then they're certainly using it to supplement their wild hunting gathering. Probably a little bit more than you would expect for um, uh, people at that time. So it's possible they could be doing something as early as 7,000, that they could be in that process of early uh, agriculture slash horticulture. So... Um, those are the two primary candidates for where corn is being domesticated. Um, and I am starting to lose my voice, so I am going to... Uh, I think this is a good place to call it. Um, we've talked about the etymology and geography and some of the advancements are there being make it, made here in this region. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the peoples that are possibly living at these places um, next time and then we'll move a little bit further into um, Central America 
as we then transition to South America. So, um, and I am, this is next part of the recording. So this is a separate day. This is Monday. Um, I'm going to have this out basically as soon as I finish up here. Uh, so um, I hope you've all enjoyed. If you have any questions or feedback or constructive criticism, please let me know. You can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also, <clears throat> excuse me, direct message me on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. And then uh, you can also comment on any of my YouTube videos. So uh, thank you all for joining me. I hope you've had a good episode. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your day and week. Thank you all. Goodbye.